you would turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm verse, uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 13. Psalm 31, just the first half this week, the second half next week. And one of the hymns that we did not sing this morning was a hymn that's famous all around America in particular and Canada. It's the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Author Joseph Scriven from Canada penned in a private letter to his sick mother across the sea from Canada in Dublin, this particular hymn, one of the phrases which reads like this, Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, for the believer in troubled times, in this case, someone who is far away from his mother, probably would never see her again, had heard of her very serious illness, was seeking to take his prayer to the Lord and to comfort his mother that she could take her prayer and her circumstances to the Lord as well. You see, in troubled times, the Lord is a refuge. And that is both a statement and a commitment for the believer to show that he really believes those words. That's what David is writing about in the first 13 verses of this psalm. Let's read them together, or I'll read them, you can listen, and then we will look at them more in depth. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye <coughs> excuse me, is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. So we consider these words of David, words that can change us and can teach us. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, may these words fall upon ears that hear and hearts that understand your word. Give us encouragement, give us strength to face each day. And Lord, I pray that the words and the meditations of all of our hearts in this place would be pleasing in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray all these things and pray that anything in this room that is not consistent with your word and your way shall never be heard from again in this world. In Jesus' name.
Some of you may have worked with troubled youth. Maybe it's a small child or maybe it's someone who's gone through a traumatic experience. Maybe it's someone who has had all kinds of things in life perhaps not go their way. And when that takes place, you know that it's probably true that there is one place that, at least in their mind, is considered a safe place. It might be a spot in their room, perhaps even under a bed or in a corner. Perhaps it's in a closet where they hid from trauma. Perhaps it's a spot outside, a place where they feel safe and closed in as if no one can get to them. Sometimes it may even be a spot in the family car. You know what it's like when everything in the world has seemingly gone against you and there are times when you feel like you cannot overcome the experiences that you're going through and perhaps cannot even handle life. For a young person who does not know how to respond and sometimes for us as adults when we simply get to the end of our rope We might retreat to our place in which high stress and times when we are experiencing great difficulty, that one place that we find that might be safe. When you get to the end of the rope, where do you go for solace or even rescue? David says, the believer goes to the Lord. The Lord is my refuge. Perhaps you've heard those words elsewhere. This is the theme of much of these verses. The Lord is my refuge. He will also say, I will trust in the Lord. And finally, the evidence as he gives to God all the details of his circumstances, the realization that the Lord is our only help and our only hope. First of all, the Lord is my refuge. It says here, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Now it's interesting, here in this particular passage, he's not only going to say the Lord is a refuge. You notice in verse 2 it says, be a rock of refuge for for me. In verse 3 it says, for you are my rock and fortress. This has been a theme throughout this entire section of several chapters of the book of Psalms, that God is our rock our mountain stronghold, our refuge. This word for rock sometimes meaning boulder, indicating strength. And yet here, David reminds us that God is all those things, but we as believers have a job to do. He says, I sought refuge in the Lord. In other words, it's not good enough to just say, well, God is a refuge, We should act upon that truth. You know, we're often told as pastors that the most important part of the sermon is the application. Well, here's the beginning of the application of this sermon. Seek refuge in the Lord in times of trouble. He says, I sought refuge in you, O Lord. And here's why. He says, let me never to be put to shame again in understanding that this is not that he would have a bad reputation among people, but but that if he, as the leader of God's people, David the king, is put to shame amongst his enemies, God's reputation is at stake. And David repeatedly throughout these sections of Psalms again refers to this idea 
that if God does not work with him as he has promised, then his name and his reputation are at stake. And so he calls on that reputation before God. But here he says, in your righteousness, give me safety or bring me into safety, deliver me. He's requesting safety with the Lord's righteousness. Now, on one hand, we look at the words of David and we understand that what David is saying to God is, you are just and your actions are righteous. In fact, when you deliver your people, we see your acts of righteousness. But of course, we on this side of the cross, looking back on this particular scripture, understand that we're told in scripture that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. So David's prayer is in part not just that God's righteous actions would save him, but he is also prophesying here that by God's grace, the true righteousness of God that we can attain, and that's only by faith in Jesus Christ, Christ himself would rescue and deliver David. When we seek refuge in the Lord, we're seeking safety in his righteousness, and that's in Jesus Christ. But also, sometimes we just want God to hear us, don't we? Verse 2 says this, incline your ear to me. You know, the word incline is not necessarily a literal word here, but it's very appropriate because God is heavenly. God is not man. God has to condescend, in essence, in order to come to the people of God. And so when we say, incline your ear, it's almost as if he's saying here, by the way, God, we don't deserve your attention. You don't have to give us your attention, but by your grace, you will condescend to us and listen to us. So he's requesting audience with God. And then he says, rescue me speedily. This sounds kind of demanding, doesn't it? I want salvation now. I think what he's indicating is that his situation is dire. In fact, you'll find that when we get to the last part of this section of Psalm 31. His situation is is dire, so he's requesting a fast rescue. But it's all in the Lord. Here's a reminder of it. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. In other words, this is the only place I can turn. When I'm in dire distress and my circumstances seem overwhelming, I will seek refuge in you. And it reminds us again, the Lord is my rock. In my mountain stronghold, that's the word fortress here, mountain stronghold. In other words, this is the place that it was hard for the army to come in and conquer. It was not only a strong wall that might have been built by others, but it had the strength of the mountain as its foundation. And here it is, God himself is immovable. Yes, that's a theological truth about the character and person of God. He's immovable. He cannot be conquered. David realizes this, being a man of military action, a hero to the people of Israel. He knows that of all the armies that can be conquered, they all have a weakness. Even the strongest army can be moved by someone stronger than themselves. But God can never be moved. 
For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. These two words sound much the same, although there are some commentators who will say they mean very different things, very similar but different. He says, you lead me, that is, you will take me in the right direction, you will guide me, you will reveal to me your holy will so that I will be able to follow you. So it's both the physical sense of being led and the spiritual sense of being guided in the will of God. You will lead me and you will guide me. The verse 4, I think, is very important for us who realize that sometimes, not all the time, sometimes when we're in dire circumstances, it may be because we've fallen into the traps of the enemy. Sometimes that enemy may be sin. Sometimes that enemy may be just being deceived of one sort or another. Or perhaps it's that there were those out to get us and they've trapped us. And he says, you take me out of the net they have hidden for me. You will make me come out from the net. Charles Spurgeon on this passage says that sometimes when we're in the net because of our own sin, it's going to take some strength to pull somebody out of it. It's a tough net, and it's going to take some finagling to get that person out of all the trappings of that net. Why would he do this? Again, you are my refuge. And in case the reference to the righteousness of God delivering us wasn't enough to point us to Christ, here's this next verse, perhaps the most famous verse of the entire psalm because Jesus quoted it on the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Now when Jesus said this, we know that he was about to die. And as he was thinking about his impending death, about to breathe his last breath, he quoted from scripture, basically saying to God, your will shall prevail. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. Our version says, faithful God. When he says, into your hand I commit my spirit, what is he doing? First of all, he's recognizing his status and his position before God. Why is he willing to entrust his spirit to God? In David's case, he may not be near literal death, although it seems as if he's promoting that idea in the psalm. Whatever the circumstances, he's willing at this point when he pens these words to commit his life to the Lord, particularly his spirit. Why? Because he knows that he's redeemed. It's not you will redeem me, it's you redeemed me. A past action, something that has already taken place. David has placed his faith in God. He knows because of God's character and God's promises and God's past actions that God will rescue him. And it's so interesting here that he doesn't say, I commit my life. He says, I commit my spirit. Recognizing that though he should live or die, he will trust his spirit in the hands of the Lord. Why? Again, not only because God redeemed him already, but because God is the God of truth. You see, here we're understanding that God, when he says things, 
It's not like man. You know, in the book of Numbers, we have that great phrase that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. There are times I change my mind. I may say I'm going to do something and then I may change my mind. Hopefully, if there's someone else affected by the change of my mind, I'll call them up or talk to them and tell them I've changed my mind. But sometimes I may forget. Even unintentionally, we may not do what we said we were going to do. And yet there are some times when we say things that we're going to do and we have no intention of doing them. Why? Because we're all liars. It's part of our nature. Sometimes we don't intend to be liars, particularly if we're in Christ. We don't want to lie. We battle with this idea of lying or not, but it's a temptation for us nearly every day of our lives. Sometimes it's a temptation to tell somebody that they're something that they're not. Sometimes it's the idea of of covering up our condition and not wanting other people into the recesses of our life and our heart, and we just say a little white lie to cover it up. Whatever it is, God is not like us. He's the God of truth. That's why we can entrust our soul with him and commit that to him because unlike every other person on the face of the earth, he is completely 100% trustworthy. His word is true. Now that author, Joseph Scriven, of What a Friend We Have in Jesus, had a life-changing event in his early 20s that brought him to Canada from Ireland. That life-changing event in the 1840s was that he was set to be married, and the night before their wedding, his fiancée drowned in an accidental drowning. He began to be impacted by the Christian faith, and it began to put a barrier between him and his family, became more and more estranged from them, so he decided, because of those two circumstances, to go to Canada. He left his home country, and he began to dedicate his life to serve widows and the poor with his carpentry skills. In fact, he sold all his possessions. And if there were those who came to him with a paid job, he would turn it down so that he could spend his time helping those in need. You see, he was all in for Christ. Tremper Longman, one of the commentators on this passage, calls this statement an act of abandonment. You see, it's complete surrender to the will of God. This is Jesus wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Stephen about to be stoned to death, giving the people the history of God's work with their people and submitting to their murdering him, crying out to them at the same time, don't hold out, don't hold this against them, Lord. This is those who are willing to drop things to serve the kingdom, who are willing to forego big salaries or who are willing to forego life decisions in order to serve the Lord. Whether at that moment of death, like Stephen or Jesus, or whether throughout our life, those decisions that we make that are either about me, about my reputation, about my glory, or about the glory of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. The author says... I will trust in the Lord. Verse 6 kind of gives a comparison contrast here. 
He says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. The funny thing about the term worthless idols is that the word image isn't in here. It's basically worthless vanities, but it's a euphemism for idolatry. He says, I hate those who pay attention to worthless idols. Instead, what does he do? I trust in the Lord. In other words, all those other things, for us, it may not be Baal and Ashtaroth, but it might be money, sexuality, pleasure, retirement, whatever it is, some things, even good things that we make an idol to God about, He says, instead of paying regard or worshiping those things, I trust the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah. And so verse 7 says, here's what it looks like. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Again, what is it that he's so joyful about and happy about? It's that Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant faithfulness or God's loyalty to his people, his love and mercy to them, his commitment to his people. He says, I find joy in that. He also finds joy in this. Because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. He knows that God knows. Isn't that a delight? To know that God knows. This means he knows the worst things that have happened to you. He knows the things that you're struggling with that nobody else knows about. He knows those times when you go home and you just have tears on your bed at night. He knows those times when you just don't know what to do because life is overwhelming. He knows those times when you're wrestling You're wrestling with that that idea that, yes, I want to have my sin, but no, I know it's wrong. He knows that wrestling. He sees the misery, the distress of your soul. In fact, the idea here is he sees the misery, and then the word is, you know the drought of my soul. That's what the word is here. Drought of my soul. You ever felt like you've had a time where your your soul is just in a drought? It's dried up. There's nothing watering it. It, You you may not even desire to be having devotions with God at that moment. Uh, You you might even think that that things are so bad, there's, there's nothing to look forward to. There's no hope. Sometimes as we get older, we say, well, I think I've done everything in life that I think is worth living for. Now I just have to live out the rest of it. That's what drought of the soul looks like. And despite the fact that God knows those things, despite the fact that God knows all the bad stuff about us, both the things we're struggling with and the things we sin about, despite the fact that God knows all those things, he acted on our behalf. Verse 8, you did not deliver me into the hand of the enemy. It's, it's a shock. You know, if, if everybody here in church knew everything bad about me and everything I struggle with, I think you would say, why are you here? Why are you, why are you preaching from the pulpit? Why, why do you think you have something to say to us that would help us in any, any way? And yet, God is the God 
who when he sees his people, those who truly trust in him, who have committed their life to him, trust the truth about Jesus Christ and his righteousness, he will not deliver us into the hands of the enemy. This is the enemy of death and the devil and sin. Remember he said, I commit my spirit to you, but he understands that death may come In other words, life in this sense may not ever be the same, but I know in you I am safe. Not only did you not deliver me to my enemies, but you set my feet in wideness or broad place. What does that mean? Does that mean that, hey, you know, you set them in a place and there's lots of place to to grow? This is a sense of security and freedom. A place where you don't feel closed in and as if the world is a weight upon your shoulders. Instead, you're in a free place where you have no concerns or anxieties. Again, Charles Spurgeon on this passage, he says, Civil liberty is valuable. Religious liberty is precious. Spiritual liberty is priceless. When I think of the times when we need a place to be where our enemy will not find us. I think of those great times in history where we see the the dramatic places where even close friends have betrayed us. We think of the play Julius Caesar, and he says in that dramatic fashion, et tu, Brute. We think of Jesus sitting down at the Last Supper and saying to one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, go do what you are meant to do, knowing that the demon within him would betray him. Even a close friend's betrayal. But this is not like God. We can tell God, you see, you know, but I know you will still work on my behalf. You will not abandon me. You will not forsake me. You are my refuge. You are my strength. You are my ever-present help in times of danger and distress. You see, the Lord is my only help. And then this last section that we're going to look at this morning, verses 9 through 13, basically we come before God and we say, because you are our refuge, because even though you know these things already... And yet you are still with me. You will not abandon me. Let me just lay it on the line for you. How many of you in your prayer life do this? Sometimes, if you're like me, you think, well, my requests aren't that important. And I don't want people to make it look like I'm just asking God for stuff about myself. But sometimes it's so important to just be honest and lay it out before God. And this is what David does. Be gracious to, my, to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Well, God knows that. But David says it anyway. He says, basically, in this passage, be gracious to me because I'm falling apart. I'm falling apart. My eye is wasted from grief. The idea here is your eye is dissolving. You know, that's a euphemism for saying I'm, I'm just falling apart. My soul and my body are falling apart. My life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. This is not a momentary affliction. This has been going on for months, even years. 
years of sighing and sat strength. You know what it is when someone goes through a time of depression or despair or something terrible has happened in their life, they, they hardly have the energy to get out of bed. They hardly have the ability to put things together and, and dress themselves for the day. And David says, this is what it's been like. There have been years of this. I just sigh and groan. My strength is gone. And then the self-reflection. Why? Because even in the midst of everything else going on, I know that part of this is my own iniquity, my own sin. My bones are weak due to my sin. I read this to Jennifer last night from, from Charles Spurgeon. I really like Spurgeon on this. You can tell from this sermon. He said, sinful morsels, though sweet in the mouth, turn out to be poison in the bowels. His bones are wasting away. Verse 11. He changes from be gracious to me because I'm falling apart to now be gracious to me because I'm attacked by others. It's not just my own sin. It's not just my own situation. It's also that when other people look at me, they look at my despair. They look at my depression. They look at my situation and they take advantage of it. I've become a reproach to my adversaries, especially to my neighbors. A disgrace to both those who are far away and those who are close to him. Notice here that this is especially to those who are close. I have to say, the most trying times are when those sharp things come from those who I think are close to me. And then he says, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. The word for acquaintances is kinsmen. This idea of dread is terror. When they look at me... Uh, things are so bad, they're afraid it could happen to them. I'm a terror to them. Those who see me in the street flee from me. You know, perhaps it's an illness and they, you know, he's got pox all over his face or something. I don't know. But I think the idea here is he is in such dire distress. He is without strength and sapped. And they look at him and they say, I don't want to be in his company. Misery may like, com may like company, but I don't like to be in the company of misery. And so they run away from him. Then verse 12, I've been forgotten like one who is dead. You know, here's, he's reminding us that the truth here. Sometimes we think, hey, if we just have all the right stuff in place, people are going to remember us when we die. We'll have a memorial to us. We'll have a building with a name on it for us. We'll have a reputation that's passed on generation after generation. But the reality is this. When you die... Over time, people are going to forget about you. In fact, even if you're a very important person with a statue, those statues are going to come down, aren't they? It's happening in our own culture and place. He says, I, am, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. Nobody remembers me anymore. I've become like a broken vessel. And then perhaps the most awful thing, is he hears the rumors and the conspiracies. Some of them very real. People whispering gossip about him, seeking to attack him, people conspiring against him. This is David, perhaps, it's conspiring against him in his own household. After all, when his own son rebelled against him, there were members of his own cabinet and household that joined that conspiracy against him. What terrible things it might be. 
but it's probably also hearing those things that the enemy places in us that may not even be true. We hear people whispering and we see them in the corner and we think it's all about me. This is the situation. So why does David say all this? Because he's being real with God. Being real with God. You know, I've been told how many times that I know the church is supposed to be a comfort place. The church is supposed to be the place where I can lay myself out before others. The church is supposed to be my safe place. I just don't get that. It's because the church is not your safest place. God is your safest place. Jesus Christ is your safest place. Now, church should be a safe place. We should be committed to one another, and we should love one another. Despite everything that happens in our lives, we should be willing to share all those things and still welcome each other, but we know we're human beings that are messed up in sin, and sometimes people are going to have terrible church experiences, but that does not change us from seeking refuge in the God of the church and in the Christ who has saved the church. What does it mean that God is our rock and our mountain stronghold and our refuge? It means this, he redeemed us. It's already accomplished for those who have faith in Christ. It means this, God is the God of truth. Despite knowing us, he is committed to us and will never let us go. What does it mean to take refuge in the Lord? It means to understand who God is. The scriptures reveal this, like Psalm 31. He's our refuge, our strength. Why, do, why is this repeated over and over and over again in the Psalms? It's because we're so dense we don't get it. We need to be reminded of these things because life will give you lemonade. It will give you terrible experiences and times. Just because you're a believer in Jesus Christ does not sap you from experiencing the ravaging effects of sin in this world. Death is coming to you. Death is coming to your family. Disease and distress and brokenness and all those things are coming. And yet what do we do? We understand who God is. He alone is our true safe space. He alone is the one we can be truly real with. Don't hide the truth from God. He already knows. Don't sugarcoat the things of your life before God. It won't work. Because God knows, but God still loves his people. He knows the distress of our souls, and yet by his grace he is our rock and our refuge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these words of reminder. Lord, when tough times come, sometimes I forget them. When tough times come, sometimes we don't want to tell you about it. When tough times come, we look at the world and we think everything is a burden to us, everyone is conspiring against us as Modern authors write, we want to go eat worms. But Father, help us. Rescue us speedily. Not only from the situations we are in, that's up to you and your will and your purpose. But Lord, rescue us from despair. Rescue us from distress. Rescue us from the ever-burgeoning burden of our own sin and the consequences of the sin of ourselves and others.